Hello and welcome. My name is Liva Bonnevi and this is episode 25 from Clan of the Horses, a podcast about horses and horse people. Today's guest, Sue Dyson, is a former president of the British Equine Veterinary Association. She is an accomplished rider who has produced horses to top national level in both eventing and show jumping. And last but not least, she is known as one of the top equine orthopedic specialists in the world. Sue recently presented a study followed by a documentary titled The 24 Behaviors of the Ridden Horse in Pain, Shifting the Paradigm of How We See Lameness. And with the study, Sue and her team has also put together an ethogram designed to help riders determine whether their horses are healthy or in pain. Is there sound? Can you hear me? Yes, I can. Thank you. Yes. Beautiful. Good. Okay, thank you, Sue, ever so much for, for taking the time to have this interview. You're very welcome. Um, I always like to start with the beginning, uh, your personal story. You know, there's so many things you can do in, in life. So why horses? And uh, last but not least, why equine orthopedics? Um, well, I started riding as a very young child and it became a passion. Um, so I had ponies from the age of uh, five. And then as I got older, I was very much engaged with training ponies and then producing them and competing with them. Um, I wanted to do things well. Um, and I learned a lot and was very fortunate to have some help from a variety of different mentors. And I also worked for a dealer. So I rode many different types of ponies easy ones, difficult ones, lame ones. And so I got a very broad spectrum approach. And then when I first started riding horses, I was lucky enough to buy several horses in succession that were bought at a young age. Some of them were difficult, but they went on to either upper national level show jumping and or eventing and then were sold for increasing amounts of money. Um, but three of those horses were absolute superstars. One won the Junior European Show Jumping Championships twice. The next one went to two Olympic Games and a World Championships. And the next one went to a World Championships as well. So I learned a huge amount from those horses. And I was fortunate enough while I was at high school to be fairly good at most subjects and I also played a lot of sport and didn't really know what I wanted to do and it was only when I was 17 that I suddenly thought I wanted to be a horse vet. I didn't want to be just a vet, I wanted to be a horse vet so the only reason I went to vet school was to be a horse vet and I hadn't realised at that time that there were very few women in the profession. It's changed enormously since then, now it's 90% women but at that stage it was like 9% women going to vet school and very few of those went into the equine veterinary profession. Um, during my years at vet school, I focused as much as I could on horses. Um, and I had some work experience, again, with dealers, but again, with also some equine vets. One of whom said, I think you should go to America for further experience and made me aware of a scholarship, which was an Anglo-American exchange which enabled people studying a variety of different subjects to go to the University of Pennsylvania for a year or two years 
and also people from America to come to study at postgraduate level in the in the UK. And I was fortunate enough to be able to win one of these scholarships and go to the University of Pennsylvania. And then I realized that my main passion was lameness and poor performance, because that's what I related to as, as a rider, because the most frequent days off training are due to lameness. So it seemed a very obvious path to follow. And I had also been incredibly lucky because whilst I was an undergraduate, I had met a lady called Sheila Wilcox, who was the first lady to ride at the European Event Championships. And she asked me to come and ride for her. So I did so during my vacations. And during that time, I rode some superb horses and also met Jacques Legoff, who was the American chef to keep at the time, and Bruce Davidson, who was the world eventing champion at the time, because I rode horses that they came to try to buy. And then within a week of arriving in Pennsylvania to work as an intern, I met Bruce Davidson again and he recognized me and said, would you like to come and ride some horses whilst you're here? So I managed to ride horses for Bruce Davidson whilst I was in America and I stayed there for two years, in fact. So I was had an incredibly lucky grounding and I met other people who've been mentors and long-term friends from the United States who were very influential in my career. So for example, I met Dana Marks who was the uh, show jumping team vet for the American team and from whom I learned an enormous amount. So there were very many fortunate things that happened early on that put me where I was. So when I came back to the UK, I had something to sell as this young, small female vet. Um, it was still not easy, but it was easier than it might have been. So that was a start, um, a, a very good start. Uh, I, I can't help but re, um, you know uh, noticing that you you refer to much of this as as luck or good fortune. And sometimes you know timing and, and luck is part of the game, but for sure also there is a huge you know talent and capacity in you that made this journey possible. I think I was determined. I think I had a good natural feel for horses, so I always wanted to train my ponies to go in the correct way. We had no facilities, so I would be hacking along in the forest, but still wanting the pony to work correctly and feeling the difference between the pony working correctly and incorrectly. And I think that that has given me huge abilities as a veterinarian. And as a veterinarian, I've often ridden clients' horses. I was very aware that horse owners can have problems that if you just see the horse trot up and down, you can't see anything abnormal. But if you see the horse ridden, you can appreciate that there's something abnormal. And if you ride it and you are a good rider, you can immediately feel what the rider is telling you. And having ridden many clients' horses, it enabled me to look better than I had would otherwise be able to do because I could relate what I felt to what I could see. So I think I became a much better observer as a result of that. And and also also the fact I think that you have experienced riding really good and and one hundred percent sound horses. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I think that uh, there are many people who have probably never ridden a truly sound horse, so they don't know how it feels, nor do they know how it should behave. And I think that that is an enormous hurdle to overcome, because when you've ridden a pain-free horse, it responds to your cues. It has its ears forward. It goes forward willingly. When you're teaching it something new, it may be a little confused initially, but it soon learns what you want 
and progresses accordingly. So often I've heard from owners saying, well, my horse is a difficult horse um, and he's never really wanted to canter on the right rein. But my trainer says it's because I'm not strong enough um, and I'm weaker going to the right. And I think, well, then, no, that's not right. That's not right. Because if the horse is pain free, it should be able to canter easily on both reins with appropriate training. So I, I truly believe that I could not have done anything that I've done in my career had I not been a rider and not just a, a rider who sat on horses, but somebody who could feel horses and had ridden some good horses, but also ridden some lame, uncomfortable horses who were much, much more difficult to train and much more difficult to sit properly on. Mm. I, I think if you get on a pain-free horse and you have a naturally good position, you can maintain that good position and you feel effective. Whereas you get on a horse which is uncomfortable and immediately you feel that your position is compromised and that you are riding less effectively. And if you take away that pain from the horse, then it immediately becomes more easy to ride and more comfortable for you to sit on and easier for you to maintain your balance and your position. So um, I could have reached out to you because I've you know done this podcast for two years. But what really, because I, you've been on my list, I think, since day one. But then there was this recently published documentary I came across, 24 Behaviors of the Ridden Horse in Pain. And it was based on a six-phase study uh, spanning, uh, spanning on, I think, three years. And you were examining over 400 uh, horses. And that really got me going uh, because I'm really so curious to hear you talk about your most important, important findings from this study. Well, I think, first of all, I, you need to know why I did the study. And the study was born out of frustration, intense frustration that for years and years and years, I had been listening to owners telling me that their horse wasn't right for whatever reason. And then as I delved into the history, I realized the problem was much longer standing than they had recognized. And because it was longer standing, whatever the final diagnosis or diagnoses were, they were going to be more difficult to manage because a recent onset problem before the horses developed secondary movement patterns and lost muscle and developed other lameness causes as well, that is far, far more difficult to successfully treat than the recent onset problem. And I was very aware through previous studies that we had done, looking at the general sports horse population, that there was a large percentage, approximately 50% of sports horses, which were actually lame, although their owners thought that they were working comfortably. And so it was clear to me that owners, and probably their trainers as well, were rather poor at recognising lameness or pain-related changes in performance. For example, being difficult in canter, becoming disunited or being stiff and stilted in the canter. And so I therefore thought that maybe if I could um, confirm what my impressions were, that abnormal behaviours often accompanied lameness in ridden horses, that maybe owners could recognise behaviour changes better than they could recognise lameness and therefore identify problems earlier on. So that was the principal reason for getting started with the study. Uh, and I was, I was absolutely sure in my own mind that we would be able to show that there were certain behaviours that were more likely to be seen in lame horses versus non-lame horses. 
So we started initially by looking at facial expressions in horses. And we started with facial expressions because it's well recognized in other species, including in man, that facial expressions can reflect pain. So in uh, neonates and in elderly people with dementia who can't communicate, facial expressions are used to determine whether the human patient is in pain or not in pain. And there had been some earlier work done in horses, um, comparing horses before and after castration uh, and comparing a group that had pain relieving medication around the surgical period with those which did not have any pain relieving medication. And just by observing the facial expressions, they could tell which horses had had the pain relief and which had not. So because there was that preliminary data there, we started just by looking at facial expressions. And we showed that, yes, indeed, there were differences in facial expressions between lame horses and non-lame horses. But that was just preliminary work building up to looking at the whole horse behavior, because that's what I felt was so important, looking at whole horse behavior whilst being ridden. Um, so we had a group of non-lame horses, and these were horses that we'd identified for a different study when we wanted to look at back movement in non-lame horses for my PhD student. And she was from Denmark and was living close by to a number of big competition yards. So we went to one big dressage yard and one big show jumping yard and looked at all of the horses there. We looked at them in hand, did flexion tests, saw them on the lunge, on soft and firm surfaces and saw them ridden. And from that, we were able to select a group of completely non-lame horses. And so we had that as our baseline non-lame group. And then we compared those with a group of lame horses. And we had video footage of all of these horses. And so we started off, um, and I say we, because this work was done in collaboration with Dr. Janine Berger, who is an Austrian-born vet who is based in the United States, who is board certified in both veterinary behavior and veterinary welfare. And she's also a rider and a qualified bee writer. So somebody very good to work in collaboration with. So we looked at all the literature about ridden horses and we looked at our observations and we watched these videos and we watched other videos as well and came up with a list initially of 117 different behaviors. And then we applied these behaviors to the non-lame horses and the lame horses. And using statistical analysis, we could determine that there were 24 behaviors, the majority of which were at least 10 times more likely to be seen in a lame horse than a non-lame horse. So we then called this the ridden horse ethogram, which comprised the 24 behaviors. We then went back and applied this 24 behavior ethogram to the non-lame horses and the lame horses. And we were able to show that the majority of the lame horses had a total score of eight or more of the 24 behaviors, whereas um, the majority of the non-lame horses had a score of around two out of 24. So that was a huge difference. We then took a group of lame horses and compared their ridden behavior uh, whilst they were lame being ridden 
And then we took away their pain temporarily using nerve blocks. So nerve blocks desensitize various parts of the limb in order to find where the source or sources of pain are. And if we take away the pain by the nerve blocks, which effectively desensitize the painful area, then the lameness goes away for two to three hours. So we were able to compare their behavior with the pain and immediately after resolution of the pain. And we saw that immediately after the resolution of the pain, their ridden horse pain ethogram scores came down dramatically. So they were all then less than eight and generally around the two to three mark out of 24. So a horse may go from 12 out of 24 behaviors to three out of 24 behaviors. So a marked difference. So this also showed that the behaviors were not necessarily habitual. Um, there was a causal relationship between them and pain, because as soon as you took away the pain, the number of behaviors uh, reduced significantly. And those behaviors which persisted tended to be observed with lower frequency than before. So through these studies, we could show that if you evaluated a horse working for between five and 10 minutes in walk, trot and canter and transitions and 10 meter diameter circles in rising trot, in the majority of horses, that was sufficient time to apply the ethogram in an effective way. But we also showed that um, if, for example, you're dealing with an upper level dressage horse, which has to work in various different collective movements, that it may be very comfortable working in working trot around the periphery of the arena. And it was only when it was asked to do the physically more demanding movements that it began to show signs of discomfort. So it may in canter flying changes or in canter pirouettes or in half pass to the right or the left began to show abnormalities. So it's important if we're going to apply the ridden horse pain ethogram accurately, that we see the horse do its full repertoire of movements. Two things you said that really kind of caught my attention. The one is habitual, that people will say, well, he's always done it. Yes, they commonly say that to me. They say, well, it, it's just normal for Fred. He's always done that ever since I've had him. So it must be normal for Fred. And I say to myself, it's not normal for Fred. That is not normal behavior. But I think that as riders, most of us learned to ride at riding schools. And good riding school horses are quiet. Um, they don't respond in any quick way by and large. And I think sadly, that's because quite a lot of them are slightly lame in several different limbs. And they also show many behavioral abnormalities. So they may lay their ears back, they may swish their tails, um, they may canter crooked. And so we learn to ride on horses that are not normal horses, either in terms of their movement or their behavior. So we become somewhat conditioned that these behaviors are normal for horses, when in fact, they're not normal for horses. And we need to re-educate people to say, a normal horse should look like what we conceive anthropomorphically as a happy horse. So it should have its ears forward. It should go forward willingly. It should walk, trot and canter without difficulty. And it should um, not be unduly tense. It should be relaxed and move and swing through its back. And I don't think some people have ever ridden horses like that. 
And then you have a lot of amateur owners, and I was one of them, that only has one horse at any one time. So you get used to riding that horse and you're riding it every day. So you are not aware of a slow change either in the horse's movement or its behavior until suddenly the horse says, I don't want to do this. And so things get missed early on because you've become used to looking at your horse and you're not necessarily being completely observant. We call it uh, house blind in Norway. That's the expression we use. Right. Because yeah, you live there yeah. all the time, you kind of yes. get a bit blind about things. Yeah. So, yes, And it's yes. also, like you say, it, it's a sneaky thing. You know, yeah. it, it doesn't necessarily jump, you know, from, from a corner and say, boo. It's it's kind of go, getting very, really sneaky. So it's it can be very hard to notice the change in the horse, like you say, when you see him every, see him every day, because it tends to be very slowly. And also, <laughs> because he's afraid of, of being killed, he would also try very actively to hide that he is in pain. Absolutely. I think horses are their own worst enemy in many respects because they adapt their movement patterns to minimize their pain. So, for example, they reduce movement through their back to make lameness less obvious, and they're successful in doing that. And they also continue to comply with what we ask them to do, perhaps a little less willingly, but they will still do it. And for example, many people will say to me, well, Fred loves jumping. He really loves jumping. He never stops. He doesn't like flat work, but he loves jumping, so there can't be anything wrong with him. And that's not the point. Fred likes jumping because it's more interesting than going round and round and round in circles. And also, it's less physically demanding than going round and round in circles. And when they jump, there is adrenaline released and endorphins are released, both of which are chemicals which make the horse feel happier. So there's every reason why Fred should continue to jump satisfactorily, but not perform okay on the flat. And it doesn't mean that Fred doesn't like working on the flat. It means that Fred doesn't like working on the flat because he's uncomfortable working on the flat. So there are all these kind of um, misinterpretations and myths about behavior. And we also know that although you may be a very good observer, many owners are not. And we demonstrated this when we did a study involving watching people tack up their horses and get on their horses. And before they did that, we asked them a series of questions about, did their horse show any abnormal behavior during tacking up or mounting? And first of all, we asked yes or no. And then we went through a whole list of behaviors during tacking up and then during mounting saying, does your horse do this? Yes or no? Yes or no? And we found that they were completely unaware often of the abnormal behaviors that their horses were demonstrating during tacking up. Now, some of the more astute ones, when they actually started tacking up, they said, oh, he's putting his ears back. I've never noticed that before. But now you've now you've made me think about it. I've suddenly recognized it. So I think that they, a lot of owners don't observe. Some, some owners are very, very observant, but other owners are not. They may observe aggressive behavior. So they may observe if the horse turns around to bite them when they're doing the girth up, but they don't notice that the horse is constantly moving about. It's fidgeting. It's picking up one leg and then another leg, and it's moved over in the stable. They don't notice that by and large. Um, it's just like, 
if I ask an owner, um, how long has that swelling been present in the leg? And they stare at the leg and they look again at the leg. And then they say, actually, I don't know. I wasn't aware of it. Whereas another owner immediately notices the swelling and said it gets desperately worried about it because they realize it wasn't there before. And it may be an innocuous swelling or it may be something which is important to recognize. So people are hugely variable, but I think there are more non-observant people than there are observant people. Yeah, and I also think if you are an observant person, uh, you can still go house, house blind. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. so you have to kind of, you know, pay attention and work on it at all times, I think, to be able to see your own horse properly. Yeah. But what you've done through your study then is to provide me with kind of a list of 24 things that I can actually look at that is easier for me to see. Yes, yes, yes. I, I, I like to call it a performance checklist, the ridden horse checklist. So you've got these series of 24 behaviours, each of which have strict definitions. So, for example, the ears have got to be back for five seconds or more. Just sticking the ears backwards and forwards doesn't matter. But if the ears are back for five seconds at least, then that is a tick. Uh, if the horse's mouth is open with separation of the teeth for 10 seconds or more, then that's a tick. If the horse swishes its tail once, we don't count it, but if it repeatedly swishes its tail, then that's another abnormal behavior. So you have to know what the definitions are, but the definitions are reasonably straightforward. And particularly if you initially look at video recording so you can stop and play it back, it's quite easy to learn how to apply the ethogram or the checklist. And I have certainly had many people come to me because they've become aware of the checklist. They've applied the checklist and they say, yes, this proves that something must be wrong. I felt something was wrong. I've already gone to my vet. He saw the horse trot up in hand. He said there was nothing wrong with it. He said I must just train hard or it might or it might be behavioral. Um, so it gives owners a tool to use to monitor their horses over time, uh, also to check if they think, oh, I'm, I'm sure there's something not right. Let's apply the checklist. And yes, we've got a score, say, of nine out of 24. So I'm sure there's something wrong with my horse. That validates my gut feeling that my horse is not right. And that's so valuable because um, I recently did an interview with a guest who had a horse with kissing spines. And the veterinarian said the horse is all good. The saddle fitter said the horse is all good. And the treat, you know, the people that treated the horse and the trainers, they all said the horse is all good. But she surely wasn't. Uh, and by having like a, a checklist to go through, it would be easier to, because the owner had a gut feeling that something seriously is wrong with the horse. But without, you know, kind of the ability to prove it or point to something saying, you also need to pay attention to me in all of this. Then she was kind of lost, and um, yeah, and it, eventually the horse had to be put down, and that's you know such a sad story, and it's not uncommon. You see it all the time. It's it's not uncommon, um, and I've seen the scenario so many times when the owner feels there's something wrong, they take it to the veterinarian. The veterinarian does a basic lameness evaluation, can't see anything abnormal often does not see the horse ridden, so doesn't appreciate the problems that the rider is encountering. Because they can't see anything, they may say, well, we could take some survey x-rays, or the horse could have a whole body bone scan, undergo scintigraphy. 
And if it undergoes scintigraphy, then they may find some areas of what we call increased radiopharmaceutical uptake or hot spots. And then the vet will say, well, we better x-ray those areas that are where there are hot spots and then says, well, let's treat that area um, without recognition that you can that hot spots just mean increased bone turnover. They don't equate with pain and they don't equate with pain causing lameness necessarily. Um, and therefore, now they've spent um, 2000 euros and they're no further down the line, except even more frustrated because the, the horse doesn't improve and then the vet again says well it must be behavioral or you need to have a different trainer uh, and so people get very 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 frustrated um, and I really empathize with that and I think that this performance checklist is a way of being able to say there must be something wrong and I always say if you are a human athlete you wouldn't go to your local doctor in the, in the village surgery or the local town surgery. You would go to a sports medicine person or you would go to a sports medicine physio um, and to get expert advice. And I think it's the same with performance related problems in horses. You need to seek advice from somebody who has undergone postgraduate training in how to evaluate lame horses. Um, and also ridden horses, because the only way, in my view, that we're going to reach a definitive diagnosis are to follow the principles of lameness diagnosis, which are identify the lame limbs or the painful area, maybe the back or the sacroiliac area, and then prove that it's a source of pain using nerve blocks. And then when you've proved that you know where the pain is coming from, then you do diagnostic imaging like x-rays and ultrasound scans in order to find what is the cause of the pain. And then you can start to produce a treatment and a management program. Bearing in mind that we probably need a team approach. It means me to find the diagnosis and to do some treatments and then help from a physiotherapist or a chiropractor in order to help rehabilitate the horse and perhaps help from the farrier as well in order to improve trimming and shoeing. And we may need to address saddle fit for both the horse and the rider. So it requires a holistic approach. And I think it's important when talking about saddle fit to recognize that we know that primary musculoskeletal pain can cause these um, 24 behaviors. And some horses show some behavior, uh, some of those behaviors and other horses show others of the behaviors. But also influential from our studies are two additional factors. If the saddle is ill-fitting, particularly if it has tight tree points, it is associated with higher scores. And if the rider is sitting on the back one third of the saddle rather than in the middle of the saddle, that can also influence scores. So we're all the time, I think, looking at the horse tack rider triad. You can't look at each just in isolation. You have to consider everything together. We, we did touch on statistics uh, at the start of the interview, something about like 50% or something. But do you have, did you through your study um, see measurable statistics in how many horses maybe you know uh, affected by pain that are actually ridden horses today um well 
we, we've we've done a number of studies in the UK, and there are also simultaneous studies that have taken place in Denmark, Switzerland, and Sweden. And those studies demonstrate that at least 50% of horses that are assumed to be working comfortably by their owners are actually lame. And in some studies, the proportion has been higher than that. So that's a fairly alarming statistic. Now, I'm not saying that every lame horse cannot be ridden because there are some horses with low-grade problems that are very happy being ridden. The problems don't get worse with exercise and those horses probably benefit from regular exercise. So I'm not suggesting in any way we should not be riding slightly lame horses. That's not my concept at all. What I want to do is enable the investigation of the horses which are more uncomfortable um, and have those properly investigated as early as possible and hopefully treated successfully to improve them. could also ask you, uh, I have seen top riders getting really good uh, international results where horses have maybe one symptom that's really, really clear, like the swishing of the tail with huge movements. To, to pick one random example of your list of 24 behaviors if if the horse has one really specific strong behavior can it still be a sound uh, horse it can be i think if you look at grand prix level dressage horses you will see an amazingly high frequency of occurrence of tail swishing and there are two types of tail swishing in those grand prix horses there is one which is uh, they tail swish in synchrony with the application of a spur aid And there is another tail swishing, which happens when they are finding something more difficult. Um, and I think that we, the judges need to penalize such things more heavily because this is um, a sign that the horse is not um, accepting the rider's cues as they should do. And according to the rules, that should be penalized. Tail swishing should be penalized for every movement in which it occurs, but it is not happening. No, and why not? That's really, it's really strange, I think, because it's it's so visible. And and like you said, the horse can be sound, but if if you have that kind of tail swishing that I've seen on on several grumpy horses on you know riding on high levels, um, it's also at least an indication of how the training has been for the horse. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. And it's there, there are three common behaviors with the Grand Prix horses which are seen more commonly than in any of the other horses. And those are mouth opening with separation of the teeth for 10 seconds or more, and the head being behind a vertical position for more than 10 degrees for more than 10 seconds. And clearly the rules of dressage say the, the front of the horse's head should be in a vertical position or just in front of the vertical. And behind the vertical should be penalized for every movement in which it occurs. But that is not happening. The judges are not judging what is in front of them. Um, and I can say that with a great deal of certainty because we've done a study on Grand Prix horses at elite level and at sub-elite level. And there are several other published studies on Grand Prix horses which have all shown that head behind vertical is a common finding And it's becoming increasingly common. It's much more common than it was 20 years ago, which reflects what has become normal, normal in training and normal in competition. 
despite the fact that it's completely contrary to the rules in terms of how the horses should be judged. So from my perspective, you know, being out in the forest with a pony, um, it looks like the horse industry is what we would in Norway call house blind, that they're unable to see the unhealthiness in the horses. I, I think that that is the case, yes. But people are beginning to become aware. So, for example, the French government have come up with a list of proposals for the Paris 2024 Olympic Games. And one of their proposals is that no horse should be allowed to be ridden with its head behind the vertical position on the showground at any time. Now, that would result in removal of a large proportion of the dressage horses, the event horses and the show jumping horses. I was at Lyon yesterday watching horses warm up for a five star show jumping Grand Prix and a large proportion of horses had their heads behind the vertical. These were show jumping horses. Um, so it, it is a common thing, um, but the French government have brought up these guidelines. Now they're not necessarily going to be enforced, but it shows that people are thinking about it. And I agree. I, you know, when you when you um, uh, watch the debates on the internet and uh, you know hear people being really engaged about horse horse welfare, there is it feels like a, a you know you can kind of feel the shifting of a paradigm. You know, in a few years from now. But I'm really curious to talk about you how we can get the process going a bit faster because I think it feels like we're a bit astray at the time. You know, when we when we uh, allow this to happen with the people who are actually the role models for the up-and-coming riders in, in the world? Yes, I, I do think it's a matter of education across the board and a change in mindset. And the way that I think change can be brought about is by the judges, certainly in dressage and the event and the dressage phase of eventing, is the judges to penalize things which are incorrect. Because then that would be an incentive for the riders to change and the trainers to change. But who's gonna blow the whistle first? Because what happens is that you have all this money involved. Um, yes, that's, that's an interesting point. Um, I had a discussion with British Dressage, which is the governing body of dressage in the UK um, earlier this week. And they really want to institute change and they want to institute change in part because there is increasing awareness about what we call the social license to ride and to compete. That is the public acceptability of us riding horses. And this is becoming more and more of what we call a hot potato. It's a burning issue. People are beginning to talk about it more and more around the world. And so therefore, I think that this will produce some need to change. And I think the horse industry is generally slow to change. But I use the example of riders where, riding without hats, riding with hats or riding with helmets. 20 years ago, a large proportion of riders rode without hats. And at competitions, they rode with hats that were probably not providing a great deal of protection for the head. And then in the London Olympics, Charlotte Dujardin won gold medals wearing a crash hat. 
And now you see crash hats are ubiquitous. In all competitions, you see people wearing crash hats. So the equestrian industry can change. Here we had a role model leading the way. And we've had very, very rapid change. And I think we also have to realize the need to change because think about what happened in Tokyo with the modern pentathlon and the horse that was eliminated. Within weeks, riding was removed from modern pentathlon in the Olympics. Yeah, that's, it's really encouraging, I think. And, and, and that shows how quickly public opinion can make things change. And I therefore think that the horse industry has got to be seen to be proactively changing ahead of time before somebody begins to say, you need to put your house in order. And in saying that, some of the data that my group have accumulated at competitions is supportive of the comfort level being satisfactory for most horses at higher level competition. So for example, we have looked at horses warming up for dressage at five-star three-day events. And during competition at World Cup Grand Prix level in dressage, and we have shown that the most frequent score is only two or three out of 24, which is very low. Now, it may be that the horse's head is behind the vertical all the time, but it's only showing one other behavior. So those data can be used to say, okay, the majority of horses are indeed working comfortably. So we can use the checklist to support the argument that most horses in upper level competition are indeed comfortable. In fact, what is not so good is that if we look at low level eventing, so we looked at more than a thousand horses at low level eventing, so those were jumping cross country fences of 90 or 100 centimeters or one meter 10, they actually had a higher frequency of lameness or abnormalities of canter than the five-star horses. And their most frequent scores range between four for the novice horses that were jumping one meter 10 and six out of 24 for the horses competing at 90 centimeters. So the lowest level had the highest proportion of uncomfortable horses. Still less than eight, which is good. Um, but it is interesting that at the higher levels, the horses are generally more comfortable than at the very low levels of competition. Is it possible that the horses at the lower level competition get stuck there for a physical reason? That the reason why they're not kind of climbing the natural ladder uh, is because they, are, uh, they have pain issues in the first place? I, I think in part that, but in part there is a proportion of lower level riders that have no aspirations to progress. They're very comfortable competing at that level and they don't necessarily have the skill and bravery to progress. But I would argue, having ridden at advanced level and never thinking I had the bravery to do that, if you're riding a sound horse that does progress, you grow in your confidence with that horse so that you can progress. I mean, that's certainly what happened to me. Uh, I had never thought I was going to compete at advanced level, but I did because I had horses whom I trained 
and who gave me increasing confidence in my ability to progress with them. There is one question that I've been dying to ask you uh, since the first time I saw some videos of you and that's been on my list next to your name when I say one day I have to invite Sue to talk to her. And that is uh, sometimes you have a horse that fails to perform like a specific exercise and then many trainers will encourage the rider to push the horse through it rather than question why the horse does not perform as expected in the first place. And then you can also observe that when riders then manage to push the horse through it, they're often very pleased with themselves and feel that they have had an important breakthrough. And the trainers will often agree, but what would be your perspective here? Well, my perspective is that there may be sometimes when the horse misunderstands, when you're first training it to do a specific movement, but once it understands, it should then progressively do that movement better and better and better and better. And if you're having to go through this battle, every time you do that specific movement. So I do it today, I had a battle, but I won. I come back tomorrow, I have to have a battle again, and I won. That's not that's not normal. That means there is something physically limiting that horse, which is likely to be underlying pain. Now, I can't tell you where the pain is coming from. All I can say is, in my experience, it is highly likely that that horse will be experiencing pain. And, and, and that pain may only be apparent during specific movements. Um, I, I can remember a horse that I had from a young age that had very low grade intermittent upward fixation of the patella. So he never actually locked the stifle, but the patella would not move up and down smoothly. And on some days he was perfect. But on other days, every time you did a small 10 meter circle to the right, he would be resistant. You could ride him through it, but he, and I thought, this isn't right, this isn't right. And then I realized it was because he was uncomfortable, because that intermittent upward fixation of the patella was causing him chronic discomfort, which was only apparent in those 10 meter diameter circles. Um, and then when we corrected the problem, he was then much more trainable. So I think it's really important that we recognize that these so-called training problems are very often pain-related problems. And the, the question you should always ask is, why is this horse being difficult? So for example, um, taking a different scenario, the horse will trot through water fine, but it doesn't want to drop, jump in over a little log down into water. Why, if it was happy to trot through water, is it not prepared to jump down into water? And I would say it's probably because when it lands in the water jumping down, its front feet hurt. And that's why it doesn't want to jump down into the water. It's not scared of the water. It doesn't mind the log. It'll jump the log on the flat without any problem. It can trot into the water without the problem, but the log with a drop down into the water creates increased impact on the feet. And the horse says, I don't like that, and says, no, I don't want to jump into water. Now, you may be able to hit that horse and you may be able to persuade it to jump into the water. But it probably the next time you come may also again say, no, I don't want to jump into water. Uh, a very strong rider may be able to overcome that. But that's forcing the horse to do something which it actually is finding uncomfortable. 
And if that horse is forced to jump into water like that, you will often see when it lands in the water, its ears will go flat back because it's uncomfortable on landing. Whereas most horses which are comfortable when they land, put their ears forward on landing. You can see this a lot with uh, with Western riders and slide stop. That when the horse really, you know, it's really kind of full speed and then full stop, they're always almost pin their ears really, really hard for a long time afterwards. I spent three days in Texas last week watching Western performance horses. So I saw this time and time and time again. And I, I, can, I think I can safely say after three days of observation, I don't think I saw a single horse look comfortable um, during the sliding stop because they finish up with their hind limbs way underneath the trunk in a completely abnormal posture with incredible flexion at the lumbosacral joint, which is completely non-physiological. So it's not surprising that they show signs of discomfort. Um, to me, it's a, a movement which I find difficult to be acceptable. There's um, there's a lot of work to be done still, Sue. Yes. <laughs> I really want to thank you for for um, uh, kind of putting the, a sharper light on on these issues because there are so many horses affected by our lack of understanding. Yes, and I think an important point to put across to people is that if the horse is uncomfortable, it genuinely does influence their performance, and we have data to demonstrate that at all levels. So for example, at five star three day eventing level, if the horse shows seven or more of the 24 behaviors during warm up for dressage, compared with horses that score less than seven, they are twice as likely to be eliminated or retire cross country, which is a very strong statistic. They will have higher dressage penalty scores. And if they do complete cross country, they will have a lower finish place. Uh, the same applies at low-level eventing. If you want to be in the top three, you need to have a low performance checklist score uh, because if you have a high performance checklist score, you're not going to be in the first three. The same at Grand Prix-level dressage. And if you're going to be successful, you have to have low scores. If you have high scores, the horse is uncomfortable and that will be manifest in its performance. So I think it's a strong message that there is a relationship between performance and the checklist score. Before I wrap up this uh, extremely important uh, interview, Sue, um, and ask you my signature question, I just want to make 100% sure that there are not one single... Th I mean, there are a thousand things you need to tell people, but is there anything that we have overlooked that you find really important to talk about at this moment in time? Well, I think it, it, people get hung up on specific behaviours and I think it's really important to recognize that it is the total score that's important, not any one specific behavior, because there, for each of the behaviors, there could be a variety of different causes. It is the total score out of 24 that is important. So if the horse scores eight or more, that is a very good indicator that something is not right. Even if the horse scores less than that, there still could be something not right. But don't worry about a score of one or two or three. There are a multiple reasons why the horse may show those behaviours, and it may be a reflection of your riding. For example, the head behind the vertical may simply be a reflection of the way in which you are training that horse. 
So then to my signature question, Sue, um, what have you learned through your journey with horses that you think it is really important that everybody dealing with horses should know? Well, my mantra is that you should look and look again and see. That means you must understand, look at, look and actually comprehend what you're looking at. So it goes through your brain and then you ask why. Um, so if it's a happy horse, you say, well, that's great. I don't need to be asking any more questions. But if it doesn't look happy, you need to be saying why and who can I help get to help me? Do I need the saddle fitter? Do I need the physiotherapist? Do I need the farrier? Or who? Um, because I think that horses are trying to communicate with us. We're just not very good at listening to them. True, true. Uh, Sue, um, thank you ever so much for dedicating your life to this really, really important work. I think uh, once we kind of get through this, I think, challenging part where we kind of decide that we're going to do things differently, this is one of the things that we can use to navigate. I mean, your work would be some of the basic, what do you call it, the, the cornerstone or the keystone, what do you call it in English? Yeah. The yeah. cornerstone? Seminal work, the keystone yeah. work. Yeah. Yes, whatever. So, so it's possible to build, build a, a bigger and better house on top of it. Yes, hopefully. Hopefully. So, I, yeah, thank you for, for this interview. But, but first and foremost, thank you for, for all the work that you, that you have done that made such you know, a huge difference for horses. Well, you're very welcome, but I couldn't have done that without a huge team of supporters, so I have to thank them as well. Good luck with all your future studies. I will pay closely attention to what you're doing, and if you're doing something you know, like this again that really needs to be out there, then uh, expect that I send you another email and, and invite you back. Okay, that's fine. <laughs> you have just heard episode 25 from Clan of the Horses, a podcast about horses and horse people, and you will find the ethogram and a link to the 24 behaviors of the ridden horse in pain trailer on my website, clanofthehorses.com. I also want to add a few keywords from our very first podcast back in April 2020. I think our lack in ability to read our horses also come across as a result of something that it is very tempting to describe as cultural blindness. If you are born in a western part of the world, you are also part of a culture where paintings and monuments of horses very often depict horses with facial expressions full of either fight or flight, their ears pinned back, their mouth and eyes wide open, and their nostrils flared. So this is indeed the normal we are presented with from birth. And thus, it is not just deeply rooted in art history, but also in our bones. Another challenge with our cultural inheritance is that our brain does not see the horse clearly when the horse interacts with a human because the image of a horse and a human follow a different set of rules. That is why I introduced the pasture test in the very first episode, because I really hope it will enable you to become a better observer. There it is. I want to thank my composer, Fredrik Brom, my guest, Sue Dyson, and last but not least, I want to thank you, dear listener, for your patience. May the horse be forever with you.